right, welcome back to our final session on the result of the Great Commission. We've looked at the glorious church of Jesus Christ, the nature of the church, attributes of the church, the head of the church. We've looked at the purposes of the church. We've looked at some of the characteristics of the Great Commission, in particular, the importance of education and transmitting uh, the word of God to people and the need for obedience. And we've looked at some of the strategies to help develop uh, some of this uh, key aspect of education and learning and teaching. But in our last session, I want to look primarily at the result of the Great Commission. And I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. In Matthew 28, verse 16, it says this. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I want to just walk through this uh, phrase by phrase and, and get a more thorough understanding of what's happening here. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth. That word all dominates verses 18 through 20. His sphere of authority has now been enlarged to include the entire universe. Uh, Jesus didn't have a universal ministry on earth, but now his disciples will. They will go to all nations. Abraham Kuyper said, there isn't one square inch in over all creation that God doesn't say, mine. All authority is his, and because of that authority, his, his followers can go in the confidence that their Lord is in sovereign control of everything in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So here's the, the big command, make disciples, that's the main verb, make disciples or just disciple. It's an imperative verb. And the main emphasis, then, is on the command, disciple all nations. Disciple, train, uh, reproduce, multiply disciples. Uh, that's the whole theme, in a sense, of this conference. Brutus dis defines disciple this way. To disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into relation, into the relation of pupil to teacher taking his yoke of authoritative instruction, accepting what he says as true, and submitting to his requirements as right because he makes them. A disciple is someone who not only follows Jesus but obeys him. Disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. And this command is binding to all disciples. Uh, to make others what they themselves are, disciples of Christ. So one of the main participles surrounding this main verb is the word go. Uh, go or going or, or 
you are making disciples, or while you are going and moving and living and, and changing jobs, you are making disciples. And the second thing is disciple all nations. The scope of the mission, again, is global. It's pervasive. Uh, this tells them where they are to be going, all nations. Uh, again, comprehensive of, of Jews and uh, Gentiles. And this, again, picks back up to the very first verse in Matthew, which we've looked at a few times now. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God promised Abraham that people would be blessed in his seed. And Jesus now fulfills this. This is how the nations are going to be blessed through the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 15, Genesis 12. So in a sense, the whole Bible is coming together in this great commission. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So baptism and teaching characterize the making of disciples. Baptizing and teaching are not the means of making disciples, but they characterize it. The response of discipleship is baptism and instruction. That's, you might say, one of the results or the result of the Great Commission. We get baptized and we get taught to obey Jesus and his word. Those who become disciples are baptized and taught. Uh, there's a group in, a, in North America called the ETS, the Evangelical, Evangelical Theological Society. A number of years ago, the Evangelical Theological Society hosted their annual conference uh, this is a conference of all the uh, bigwigs and, and scholars. And it's not a conference of, it's a, con it's a conference of scholars and a conference for scholars. They basically all come together and present papers to each other and read their lectures. Well, a number of years ago, they, they named the conference after Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and they, they plastered these posters, they sent out mailers to these different addresses and made banners and programs, and it said this, teaching them all things, after verse 20, teaching them all things, that was the theme of the conference for these uh, evangelical scholars. There's only one problem, that's not what it says. Jesus doesn't say, teach them all things. Jesus says, teach them to observe or obey all things. And so there was this large outcry, people saying, here you are, you scholars, and you, you messed it up. You didn't even get it right. How ironic. But it's a helpful reminder. It's not just transmitting information. It's teaching them to obey, teach them to observe all these things. The Great Commission includes teaching, training, discipleship, and obedience. Obedience. We, we are to be preaching the gospel of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're to teach people to obey all that he has commanded. We're not just here to listen and, and uh, hear. We're, this isn't just lecture hour. This is uh, obedience. And your obedience is marked by teaching others to be obedient. And then he ends with saying, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the gospel ends uh, not with a command, but with the promise of Jesus' comforting presence. This is one of the greatest pre 
uh, greatest promises you could ever imagine. While the disciples are doing this, they're going to enjoy the presence of Jesus. So let me ask you a question now. How was the Great Commission fulfilled in the early church? So Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Well, how's it fulfilled? What happens? Turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 21, we see this. It says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they are preaching the word. They're involved in direct evangelism. They're making disciples. They're raising up leaders. They're appointing elders. They're starting new assemblies, new churches. So if I'm understanding Matthew 28 and the Great Commission passage correctly, and interpreting this correctly, then it means that the early church took the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, and they started preaching the word, sharing the gospel with unbelievers, making disciples, raising up and training new leaders and promoting elders, starting new assemblies. Here's one of my main points. The local church is the result of the Great Commission, but it's also the means that God uses to further the Great Commission. God envisions moms and dads and business owners and in the first century slaves hearing the gospel, getting baptized, assembling with other Christians, learning, being taught, obeying God's word, and then sharing the gospel, sending out missionaries and multiplying churches. All this results, again, in more and more churches being planted. So in light of this, I want to reemphasize that the normal means of fulfilling the Great Commission is through the multiplication of churches. Now, what does this mean? Let's get more specific. First of all, it, it implies that the local church is the factory. Uh, it's the laboratory of getting and doing the Great Commission. We are not isolated Christians just doing our own little evangelism with people we meet. No. Uh, we are a team, a family, a group of regenerated people by the power of the Holy Spirit, committed to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and the entire word of God. And when a church is planted in, in an area of those members who've been calibrated by the word of God, then they realize their responsibility to make disciples and get the good news out and participate. And the result of that is more churches. When a healthy church is planted in an area and the membership and the members of that church realize that they each have a role to play, one of those results is direct evangelism. People will realize, I need to bear witness. This is one of the characteristics of the Great Commission. So they take responsibility. They share the good news, love their neighbors. Let's say those neighbors get saved, come to saving faith in Christ. They get baptized. They're now members of the church. They get discipled under the teaching of the word. Then the church grows in quality, in quantity, and they decide we need to plant another church and reproduce. And so the result of the Great Commission 
is more churches. I hope you could see that. So the local church is the laboratory for relationship, love, care, learning, growth, discipleship, training, all these things. It is the matrix for families to grow and encourage one another and encourage the little lambs to grow up and be nurtured. It's a matrix for leaders to be taught and discipled and trained and sent out. It's the laboratory for admonishment, encouragement, and correction. It's a family. D.A. Carson, one of the very best New Testament scholars, uh, said it this way. In the first century, it was simply unthinkable that someone would become a Christian and not simultaneously join a local church and be baptized. For this community has been set free by Christ's death and resurrection and empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. This community, the church, is the matrix in which individual believers grow, flourish, are encouraged and admonished, and frequently become leaders themselves. So at the risk of being redundant, the natural, normal result of evangelizing the lost, baptizing new converts, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded, is the reproduction of more assemblies with more leaders, more elders, more deacons, more people serving, more people loving, more people calibrated by the word of God. It's a great commission ecosystem. A great commission ecosystem in Bangalore. That's what we want. I desperately want you to see the direct correlation between the great commission and more churches. Uh, there is a direct correlation to the Great Commission, the local church, and your involvement in it, your personal discipleship. Uh, it's God's laboratory for uh, obedience and discipleship. And again, the local church is not an option. This is where COVID has put pressure and torque on the church. It's not an option. The local church is not an option. This is God's plan. This is his purpose. It's essential. We must meet together. It's his design. So I want to get practical now. Uh, we've seen the characteristics, some of them. We could list many more, I'm sure. But we've seen some of the characteristics of the Great Commission. We know it's a blessing for all people. You might be saying, yes, David, yes, David, get on with it. We agree with you. I want to get practical now about some specific points of application and principles. I believe I've got seven of them. Uh, number one, the Great Commission involves all disciples of Jesus. Now, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, then you're off the hook. This doesn't apply to you. You have other concerns more pressing, like the salvation of your soul. But if you are a disciple of Christ, this includes you. No authentic, legitimate disciple of Jesus is off the hook, nor would they want to be. This is exciting. Jesus didn't have in mind a few select people when he gave his great commission. He didn't have in mind only the young and the energetic, uh, you know, those without kids. No, he had in mind the young and the old, the rich and the poor, male, female, Jew, Gentile. Uh, every believer has a role to play in this commission. And I want to just say we have one life to live. Let's make it count. We have the greatest news in the world. 
Let's get it out there, both as a church and as individuals. Uh, lives hang in the balance. There's billions of people who need to hear the gospel. So I want you to see yourself as having a clear role and a clear function in the Great Commission. I want you to see the church as a uh, reproducing group of families who've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, set apart, called out, which is what the church is, trained and transformed by the word of God, transformed by the gospel of grace, given a specific mission. Second thing, the Great Commission is a mission, not a program. I say this because a program really has in mind isolated events. But a mission says all of life. Jesus did not give us a program. He gave us a mission. Why would someone want to be a part of a church plant? Why would someone reach out to their neighbors? Why would someone sacrifice their comfort and security? The answer is that we are people on mission. We're people of the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is not just for the foreign lands. It's for all of us. You know, we must not be people who are just reacting to things. The Lord, the Lord did not commission us to be reactors. He told us to go. Be proactive. While you're going, you're making disciples. Uh, so we have to be very clear that the means of making this happen and the result of this happening is the local church. Uh, more and more, I'm actually dissatisfied with, with programs. We need to be thinking of uh, mission. It's all of life. All of life. All right, number three, the Great Commission involves reproduction of leaders. The Apostle Paul gives a divine mandate for reproduction. I've alluded to it, but I, I want to target this specifically to you elders. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, Well, you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the verb here is for committing someone or, or something into the care of another. It's literally to give over, uh, to pass on to others for safekeeping and transmission. The word entrust is an imperative verb, an explicit apostolic directive. And so again, the, the mandate involves, has in mind some kind of deliberate process. Uh, Paul envisions a process here, a task. Someone is to do this. A person is to do this. Paul doesn't say the Holy Spirit will do this. People are to do this with his help. Uh, it's not left to our choosing whether or not to call and challenge future leaders. It is a divine must. You have to do this. Bible teacher Kent Hughes said, entrusting the apostolic deposit to others is our God-given task and joy. I love that. You know, Paul was a trainer of men. Paul had his Timothys. He had his Tituses. He gave them really large parts of his life. He was with them. He, he trusted them with difficult jobs. Uh, Acts chapter 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you. So he taught them. He, he declared to them. He trained them. Uh, we still know the names of the people that Paul trained. Timothy did the same thing. But this mandate was also urgent. In the case of 2 Timothy, false teachers were lurking. Uh, Timothy was soon to depart and be with Paul. 
So the elders would be on their own. And we know fierce wolves will come in and attack the flock. That's exactly what Paul said. The future of the church was at stake. And so I want you men to think about this. You, you leaders and elders, you're not going to be there forever. Uh, you know, don't drop the baton, as they say. Uh, uh, the purity and the future of the message is at stake. And so uh, don't bury your talent, so to speak. Consider how important it is for you to train up and cast a vision for and give responsibility to uh, other men. The mandate's also imperative. Again, I think of how many churches are just one-generation churches. A part of pastoral oversight includes planning for the future, strategizing for the future, um, being deliberate, strategic, thoughtful. My mentor tells how he uh, wound up at this church uh, where I serve. And one of the elders, this would be like, you know, 50 years ago. One of the elders came to him after about a month he was here. He was in his college age years. And he said to him, Alex, there's a place for you. Uh, there's a place for you. We can use you. And those elders had real uh, foresight. And they cast a vision for these young men. Uh, older women can do this with younger women. Uh, they knew, these elders knew they can't go on forever, so they, they trained up young men. Most of them were in their 20s, uh, but they're still serving today in, in some ways. So I love that. H have some kind of strategy for multiplication of more and more men and more training. Uh, this, again, is part of the Great Commission. You know, when a church grows, there's a few different options. One is you can, you know, spend a bunch of money and build a bigger building. Um, for our church, that really wasn't in our DNA. We didn't want to have put a huge financial burden on the people and, and uh, you know, have a massive uh, building. We're not really fundraisers. We didn't really want to do that. Another option is to go to multiple services. Uh, this is what we elected to do. At first, this is the most economical because you're using the building. Uh, you're not, you know, using the building more. You're not raising a bunch of money for a bigger building. But it also has some drawbacks because now you almost have two congregations. And, uh, you know, some people aren't seeing each other. And there's some, some uh, negatives to that. Another option is to, is to plant a church. And we'll talk about this in a minute. And another option also is to revitalize an existing church that is currently dying or struggling or looking for help. Again, we'll talk about all this in, in a minute, but healthy churches reproduce. Healthy churches train leaders. Uh, by the way, one thing I would highly encourage you to do is to have a, a study. We do the biblical eldership uh, study book and workbook. Uh, every fall for the last, I don't even know, 10 years or so, I've taken a group of men, maybe uh, 10 to 15 men, through this study, and it has been a wonderful way to train men and cast a vision for what it means to be a godly father, what it means to be a godly husband. Even if these are men who know they have no interest in being an elder, that's okay, invite them. It exposes them to healthy ecclesiology, healthy understanding of what the church is all about. So I really want to encourage you to consider that as one of the ways you can uh, help train your men. Number four, 
The Great Commission results in corporate responsibility. Uh, We need to make, again, a direct connection. I know I've said this 10 times, but we need to make this connection between the Great Commission and and the reproduction of churches. You need to make that connection for the people. The Great Commission, in a sense, is happening to you right now. Uh, But it's also your responsibility and duty right now to obey. Uh, If I had to guess, your church probably has some kind of a missions policy or goal. You might want your missionaries involved in uh, direct evangelism at times, uh, engaged maybe in baptizing new converts, engaged in in teaching all that Christ commands. My question would be, why wouldn't you want to apply that on a local level too? Is the overseas uh, mission and vision different than the local mission and vision? Just something to think about. Number five, here's another suggestion, idea. Start a local evangelism team. Maybe it's a committee, a team that thinks of ways to share the gospel. Maybe they can propose ideas. Maybe it's a a class on business where unbelievers might want to come and learn you know, strategies on small businesses or something like that. And then you share the gospel. How can we reach people with the gospel? Uh, in the past, we've offered something like an ESL class, an English as a Second Language class for visitors who are here, who maybe don't know English, and you know, we'll teach them English as a service and then Uh, present them with the gospel. Uh, Maybe there's some kind of room for a children's ministry. We have a program here called Awana, uh, and we'll feed uh, parents. You know, they'll come from the neighborhood, and uh, we'll feed them a meal on Wednesday nights, and then they'll leave their kids for a couple hours, and the kids can memorize scripture, and it's a way for them to hear the gospel. Uh, Another idea is, is to... Encourage your cell groups and home groups to invite unbelievers. Uh, What other opportunities do you have? You'll have to think through this, but maybe you uh, put together some kind of a team, some kind of a subcommittee to think through this. Here's another idea. Use your home. Jesus' evangelistic strategy was long meals with unbelievers, that seemed to be his evangelistic strategy. He would, have, he would have meals with sinners. So use food in your evangelism. People like to eat. Invite them around the table. Uh, I would propose a, a revival of mealtime evangelism. Let's have less parties with our friends and have a few more parties with unbelievers. These are just some ideas. Here's also one last thing. Talk about this with your spouse if you're married or if you're not married, talk about it with your friends. Spend some time as a family or as a group of friends thinking through uh, how can we reach people with the gospel. One other idea is to, if you can afford it, hire maybe a part-time evangelist. All right, number six, start a mission support group. Our church has a group called Missions Community. Uh, It's a group of about 50 or so people that meets every other week and uh, thinks through how to support and pray for our missionaries. Uh, We have missionaries that we support as a church, as I'm sure you do as well. 
but to have a specific group of people that is delegated to uh, put special effort into care for them, uh, bringing the, their, their prayer needs and concerns to the church, communicating with them, thinking of ways to support them and encourage them. Uh, as we consider the Great Commission, here's one little thing we can do is to have some kind of a team that is supporting people who are maybe more full-time in the work. Number seven, number seven, beware of the danger of complacency. Beware of the danger of complacency. You know, it's possible for us to become too comfortable, uh, too safe, too isolated. We must not, and we cannot do that. We can't shrink into our own little bubbles of isolation. We have the gospel. The world doesn't have the gospel. We cannot be afraid of people. We cannot be afraid of Muslims or uh, Hindus or atheists or secularists. We need to do whatever it takes to welcome them, befriend them, host them, love them, have them in our homes, uh, put our lives on the line. So don't become complacent. Beware of the tendency that I think we all have because uh, it's easier just to go home and watch a movie, just do our own thing, and we isolate into our own little bubbles. We need to be careful not to do that. All right, my last point, and I'll spend some time talking about this one, is to start strategizing about local church planting. I understand you're thinking about this or in some, somewhere in the process of, of thinking through this, but... I'll just share our story a little bit, and you can, if any of this is helpful, then great. I'd love to partner with you and think through how we can help one another uh, in this. But I want to just tell you a little bit more about our story, because it sounds similar in some ways to your church. In the last 10 years or so, God has continued to grow our church, and we were faced with different decisions as to what to do with the people uh, again, as I mentioned, one option is just to build a bigger building, which is kind of the American way of doing it. We really didn't want to do that. Uh, we didn't feel it was a good use of resources. It was too expensive. Uh, even if we could do it, we didn't really feel that that was a great idea. Um, another option is to have, as I mentioned, multiple services. We labored over this and thought through this, and we ended up doing this. Um, we went to two services on a Sunday morning, and so for a while we had a preaching service, a Lord's Supper service where we were all together, and then a preaching service. Uh, since COVID has happened, we actually now have a, a, a Lord's Supper and preaching service together, and then a second Lord's Supper and preaching service together. But 10 years ago, when those two services were both full, we decided, okay, we want to plant a church or hive off a church. Uh, one of the services would become a church plant. So we encouraged folks who wanted to be a part of that uh, church plant to start attending the same service. And eventually we sent out about half of our elders and about a third of our church. Uh, in our case, that, that first church plant was about maybe five miles away. And uh, initially, we shared the preaching, so whoever was preaching at this church would drive over and preach there until we were able to train and develop uh, the preachers. We also shared our youth group, so the youth initially were all still part of the same group. 
Then about three years ago, we did another church plan. There was a church that, that approached us and, and asked us if we wanted to have their building. They were a church that had uh, dwindled and uh, died out, basically. There was only a handful of people who were still meeting. And so we raised up, we trained one of our younger men and sent him out, really as like an evangelist or a full-time uh, worker, full-time preacher, sort of like myself at Littleton Bible Chapel. Uh, he has the same job as I do, only at that church. Three years have gone by, and, and honestly, the church is thriving. Uh, they're running out of space, looking really at what next. Uh, but our church is, for the most part, full again. We're thinking about doing this again. In fact, we're currently putting together uh, infrastructure for not just one more church, but but really becoming a, a hub or a training center for more churches being planted. We really want to create uh, a network, or we're praying about creating a network of churches that are like-minded doing the same thing. Uh, churches that agree on expositional preaching, uh, a plurality of elders, every member ministry, uh, a 70% preacher, who's able to, as 1 Timothy 5.17 says, really give himself to laboring in the preaching and ministry of the word. And so again, we're hoping to plant more and revitalize more churches as the Lord would lead and cooperate with other like-minded churches. So maybe you can do the same thing in Bangalore. Maybe we can work together, encourage one another uh, in this. I'll just ask though, is there anything more uh, worthwhile and exciting to give our energies to. Is Christ not worthy? Is he preeminent? Yes, he's preeminent. I love the story of 86-year-old uh, Joy Johnson. She was a, a veteran of 25 New York City marathons. Died with her running shoes on. Johnson, who was the oldest runner in that year's marathon, fell at the 20-mile marker in the event. She crossed the finish line at about eight hours. After the race, she returned to her hotel room, lay down with her shoes on, and never woke up. Amazingly, Johnson didn't run her first marathon until she was 61 years old. The only hint of the sport was the verse from Isaiah 40, 31, which hung on the kitchen wall in her family farm in, in rural Minnesota, which says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I want to just encourage all of us in this. Let's run the race and answer the call of our Lord's commission. Let's reproduce, train, give our energies to this. Amen? So here's the strategy for church planning. I'll just be real brief on this, and, and maybe in our uh, fireside chat we can talk more about this. But uh, seven first steps for church planning. Number one, I'd say seek unity among the elders. Uh, you know, some elder items may not need unanimity, but something like this will require all the elders to be in unanimous agreement. Uh, one of the aspects of this that should be encouraging and exciting is that the goal of planting another church is not simply to have a separate 
independent body in geographical terms, but to plant with the same uh, intention of implementing your philosophy of ministry to another geographical location. You're, you're multiplying your DNA, your philosophy of ministry, your distinctives, which, Lord willing, are the distinctives of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. Uh, so in our case, it would be uh, you know, implementing uh, biblical eldership, casting a vision for biblical eldership, uh, biblical counseling, biblical exposition, preaching, every member ministry, along with, of course, uh, our theological beliefs and, and theological distinctives like uh, complementarianism, uh, even the church in Israel, things like that. Number two, ask the church to pray about the possibility of planting a church. Maybe you suggest it like this, and I realize I'm speaking to your entire church, but let's begin to begin to pray about this. And maybe you're already there and past this, but uh, ask the church to join in praying with you about it. Gather input from the church as to uh, why this is a, a good thing, why, you know, what, what uh, issues there may be. Get their input. Maybe have an all-church meeting and discuss it. Ask questions. Answer questions. Number three, establish a church planting committee. Maybe put together a team who can spend some extra time thinking about uh, options and ideas and locations, and they bring those ideas back to the elders. Uh, but oftentimes, elders are so busy, this is going to take a lot of work. If you get a team of people who, are, who have some extra time who can really devote themselves to this, they can help the elders uh, think through some of the next steps. Number four, uh, consider identifying who should go. Uh, a lot of different ways to do this, but in our experience, we've learned the importance of anchoring the preaching around someone who can carry the 70% uh, of the preaching. Again, Paul says in First Timothy 5, let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those labor, who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul envisions some elders who are especially gifted in leading or teaching. I think ideally, if you can anchor it around uh, those men, that will help with some of this. It, it, if uh, you don't have someone like that, maybe there's a team of elders who could, uh, can take some of the lead in these areas. Um, the man should be supported and committed to the work on a full-time basis if possible. You could treat him like an evangelist at first. When our evangelist went from here to another city, uh, he was working long hours, and this really continued until he was able to raise up and bring more ministry-minded uh, people around him, which has happened, and the Lord has blessed it. Obviously, it means that if he's married, his wife needs to be on board with some of the potential sacrifices and, and whatnot. Number five, after it's determined who would go, ask others to consider going. This only makes sense if members are, are close enough to consider going geographically. Presumably people, uh, you know, uh, to go and be a part of, of the plant may not be the most uh, effect, or I should say pressuring people to go and be a part of the plant is not the most effective method. You don't want to pressure people to go. Um, number six, begin searching for a building or a place to rent or start meeting. Uh, the Lord can obviously provide a, a, a place to meet, but it's going to require some, uh, some effort and some work and some research. This maybe is where a team or the subcommittee can, can help with that. 
Number seven, if the Lord provides a building, you can determine a date for a launch and allow the evangelist or the team to begin uh, on-site work. And then last, continue the fellowship. I would say initially maybe uh, the two elderships meet together once a week or every other week. Uh, Do events together as churches. Uh, Share conferences and camps and, uh, and work together and maybe dream about planting another church together. But I think that fellowship and connection uh, is so important. So we could talk more about this in the fireside uh, chat, but uh, I hope some of these uh, suggestions are helpful to you as you consider this. We look forward to working with you and and, uh, um, helping you in any way, encouraging you in any way that we uh, possibly can. But again, I want you to see all of this in terms of, of... the Great Commission and what the Lord has called us to do. So let's be careful to obey. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the church and your plan for uh, growth and reproduction and elders and deacons and new assemblies and uh, providing more opportunities for more people to serve. Lord, it's beautiful. We love it. We love your body. We love being a part of your body. And... uh, I pray that as we uh, labor and plan and think, you would go before us. Open up doors for the word. Open up opportunities for new churches to begin. Raise up new leaders, we ask. Uh, Men and women to to help and to serve. Uh, Lord, bless their time as they uh, think through some of these implications. Uh, Lord, may you ignite a fire in them and an excitement Uh, in this church, to bring glory to your name in Bangalore, India. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.